and welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Matt Solomon, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Nick Winkleman. This podcast is brought to you by Hawking Dynamics, the world leader in innovative force plate technology. Hawking Dynamics takes a user-centric approach, featuring a fully customizable cloud-based software that allows users to easily digest and analyze complex force plate data. The technology is constantly evolving, much like an app update for your iPhone. They communicate with users on a daily basis to make their system better. In addition to all of that, they also offer some of the most competitive prices for bilateral force plates on the market. And they're the only force plate company offering a completely wireless system. So, if you want to find out more, check out their easy intro to force plate section at www.hawkingdynamics.com forward slash blog. So Nick has over 15 years of experience in the trenches as a strength coach. He's currently the head of performance at Ireland Rugby and has over 10 years work experience at Exos, including working as an NFL combine lead. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Nick onto the show. So Nick Winkleman, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's an absolute privilege to have you here. Oh, Matt, privilege is all mine. Uh, don't, don't say that just yet. We've got some questions for you coming up. Maybe you're going to get uh, frustrated <laughs> at me by the end of it. So how, how important is it to make sure that our queuing is on point? We've all had the experience where a brief moment, a cue, a phrase, a prompt, a reminder has triggered a light bulb moment. And instantly the movement changes, not only in that moment, but seemingly forever. We've equally had the moments where we cue and communicate and get that puzzled look on the face, or we see no echo of change in the movement, or worse yet, we see it actually backfire and the cue operates, maybe this is in poor taste, like a virus, and it causes destruction in the movement itself. So we've kind of had these experiences along the entire spectrum. But we've also had the experiences where we cue and communicate, seemingly make a positive improvement on a Monday, but then that player comes back on the following Monday, similar workout, same Olympic lift, let's say, and it's as if men in black have gone into their house and erased their memory and we're back at square one. So the the step forward, step back, the practice player that cannot compete. And right, that's so frustrating. Because in the moment, we think we're doing right by this person and making a positive difference, but something isn't sticking. And so everything that we're kind of navigating in that space relates to how our words impact their thoughts and how their thoughts impact the way they move. And understanding how do we do that in a way that sticks, that doesn't just improve them in the moment where we have to be present, but actually works in the future where we are not. And that's ultimately the definition for me of learning. And so if we just navigate our own intuition, we quickly see that so much of our time is occupied by directing how our athletes focus to achieve a better outcome. And for me, that is a critical variable. But as I said earlier, we get very little development, very little guidance, very little principle-based education on how we can integrate and update that art which it is an art, to the level of science, which says that we can achieve outcomes in a bit more of a systematic fashion. I think there's a a ton of points we want to expand on that. I think probably the first one is is to illustrate the the athletes, which we've all had when you've you've given a cue, and maybe it's, I don't know, throw your watch off while you're sprinting or throw spaghetti, whatever (laughs) whatever that class is. And within, within two or three weeks, your athletes are coaching each other and like, hey, yeah, you need to throw your watch off. And I'm, I'm like, oh, 
yeah, we we reached you on a level in which you're actually you've processed that, and maybe you can't even do it yourself, but you've you've processed that in your own mind to be able to coach others. And I think that's probably one of the crucial moments of coaching where you're like, oh, you can actually coach each other if I just teach you to coach. Well, hundred percent. You know, insofar as we want to be understood as coaches, which I think we all do, they want to understand, right? No athlete walks into a session with the idea that, okay, I'm going to purposely not understand what my coach says, which is why it is so frustrating when we hear coaches. And and I don't think they say this with any malice, but like, well, that person can't learn or that person doesn't understand or that person doesn't listen, right? Or they're a practice player. And we throw these poor taste euphemisms at the person, but ultimately coaches have to ask themselves, are they not understanding or are they struggling with understanding or am I struggling with teaching? Because ultimately, you nailed it right there, Matt. Our language has to plug and play in their mind. Communication is not what is said. It is what is heard and understood. And I believe that a good cue typically has two symptoms of success. And you nailed one of them. One, it works, right? So we give the cue, it impacts the person, and it actually changes. The second one is if they start to use it as a mantra themselves or something that they reiterate to others. Because that means you've gotten it so embedded and they believe in it so much that they want to put it back into the world to benefit others or at least reiterate it to themselves. Two key symptoms of a successful cue. Oh, that's, a, that's a fantastic little uh, tidbit of information. I really like that. So in terms of uh, the queuing options that we have, what can we? what's on our menu? What can we uh, use as queuing? to make sure that our athletes are getting to that level of understanding and applying uh, the movement in which we want to give. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. It is a menu. It's a sushi menu, right? It has a continuum of cues, as I like to talk about it in the book. But let's first, Matt, let's define cueing because let's be honest, we communicate with our athletes quite a bit in different ways. And so when we're talking about a cue right now, we're talking about the last idea that goes into their head before they move. And so ultimately, it's the idea that's usually a verbal cue or a phrase, whether that comes from the coach or from the athlete does not matter, but it's the phrase that is meant to become the intentional spotlight, the focus spotlight in the mind, and thus be a passenger in the mind as the athlete is moving in space. So that's what we are defining as a cue. Now, insofar as the content that can go into the cue and thus into the mind of the athlete while they move, lives on this continuum that we talk about that's flanked by internal language and external language. And so just to zoom into that, I use a literal zoom analogy to illustrate this. So if we zoom all the way in, our cues can relate to a specific joint action or a specific muscle action. And we call those narrow internal cues. They're zoomed all the way in. So that's extend this, flex this, activate that, so on and so forth. We can then zoom out just a touch and do what I call a broad internal cue. And that is instead of, let's use sprinting as an example, instead of saying hip extension, I might say drive your leg back. Okay. So now I'm referencing a limb, a collection of joints. We then can get into a hybrid where we reference both body and environment, and I literally call those hybrid cues. So that would be drive your leg back into the ground or drive your leg into the ground or push the ground away with your leg. But it's having some part of the cue reference the environment and some part of the cue reference the body. Then we get out of the body. We're outside the perimeter of the skin. 
into what we call a close external cues. And a close external cue or external cues in general reference an interaction with the environment, for example, the ground or a barbell or medicine ball or a tennis ball, tennis racket, so on and so forth. And when we look at that, it's either the ground, the environment, or the outcome we're trying to achieve. So with a close external cue, it's drive the ground away in my sprinting example, because the ground is close to me. I can then zoom out all the way to a far external cue, and that would be explode towards the finish, or drive off the line towards the finish, whatever it might be, because now I'm putting their focus farther away. To use my tennis example, the racket in contact with the ball, close external cue. Trajectory of ball and endpoint of where we'd like it to land on the court, far external cue. And we could continue to give examples from there on out. So that, if you would, represents the continuum. When we look at the evidence, Matt, of where the best cues live and the context of when those cues should be used, it's one of those interesting phenomena that within motor learning, we have identified that external cues in well over 96% of the studies not only improve performance in the immediacy of a coach giving the cue in a live scenario, let's say, but more importantly, that when we use external cues, it actually results in better learning long-term, which means the athlete or the client retains the change to a greater degree, even if there's not a reminder of what the original external cue is. And so it's not that internal cues don't improve performance, they do, but systematically, external cues result in significant to sometimes superior improvements in the short term and the long term in comparison. And so at this point, there's so much evidence, well over 170 papers at this point, for the positivities of the external cueing effect or the external focus effect, that very much so in my mind, from a coaching perspective, it is a principle, it is a best practice. And thus the last idea that enters the athlete's head before they move should either be an external cue or as we can talk about an analogy, which is just a figurative external cue visualized in the mind, like drive off the line like a jet taking off. This podcast is also brought to you by Gymwear. Gymwear have Flex. Flex is the latest product to enter the world of velocity-based training and is developed by the team at Gymwear. Flex is the only laser-based system available, and it's this unique technology that makes Flex the most accurate and reliable barbell tracking product in the sub-500 US dollar category. It's wireless, portable, and specifically designed for individual use with its own social platform and automatic training log. Flex captures all the critical performance and technique metrics that people demand from a velocity-based training device. Velocity, power, bar path, range of motion, and even bar position. Live feedback is delivered through the Flex app on every lift, and the data is automatically stored for review. Find out why VBT is such a powerful training method and what separates Flex from the competition at flexstronger.com forward slash VBT future. That's, uh, that's, again, a very, very large amount of information to pick out there. Um, so, firstly, I think it's important to, to reiterate that external cues are at the moment best practice. I think it's interesting to touch on when internal cues could be used to be effective because it's not to say that internal cues are ineffective in certain scenarios. So have you, have you got situations where an internal cue could be useful? So internal language such as extend the hip or extend the knee 
if we think about it, compared to drive the ground away. If in our sprinting, I say drive the ground away, that is an outcome to be achieved that requires the entire body, like a symphony, to work together to achieve that outcome. If I say extend the hip or extend the knee, and that's still the same movement, I'm still teaching you to sprint, that's like me asking there to be a solo, but still it requires the entire symphony to contribute. So could you imagine you're listening to a symphony and one person tries to stand up, let's say, in the trumpet section and play their solo at the same time? I don't think I don't think that's a very good listening experience for the audience. And so ultimately, when it comes to teaching multi-joint complex movements, we know that external cues are going to be the way to go, not just because of the evidence, Matt, on internal external focus, but on basic motor control, which I'm not going to get into. So there's underpinning principles of why, let's call it outcome or goal oriented language is superior to micromanaging the motion of one joint that needs to work within a symphony of many joints. But are there specific scenarios where an internal cue might be beneficial? Sure. If I'm doing a single joint work and I'm trying to increase EMG activation of just the muscles associated with that single joint motion, there's some evidence to suggest and maybe a nod towards bodybuilding that that could be effective. But if you say I'm doing a bench press and I want to improve strength, power, endurance, speed, force production, if any of those were your goals, then I could point you in the direction of external cues all the way through. And so rather than looking at internal cues, I like to talk about internal language. And so, Matt, in my book, the way I phrase it is this. Internal language can be used to describe a movement. And that's video analysis, or that's even before the movement begins. Hey, here's what we're about to do. Here's the body positions I want you in. Here's the errors we've been observing, so on and so forth. So describe it or debrief it before and after a movement. All I'm encouraging people to do based on over a decade of experience now with this and the science to back it is that have a partition between your internal language and the person doing the moving. Give your description, do your video analysis, talk about the errors, no problem at all. But then take a deep breath. <sighs> okay. Now to get that improved hip extension on your next sprint, I need you to explode out and off the line like you're sprinting up a steep set of stairs. So it's not that I'm saying get rid of the internal language. No way. We need it to describe and clarify from a knowledge perspective, understanding of what's happening and what we'd like to have happen. But ultimately, descriptive language of what the movement is and coaching language of how to achieve it are not the same. And thus, they're neighbors, but they don't live in the same house, which is why, again, external cues and analogies should be that partition, should live and be protected in that space right before the athlete or client moves. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic piece of advice. Um, and you've, you've touched on a lot of different ways of cueing and how you do that. So could you give us a quick story of how you've used cueing previously to improve your athletes? So for me, the way I use cueing is very simple. The first thing I do is I zip my mouth and I watch. And when I watch, I'm looking for the dominant movement error, or we could put it in a positive tone, the dominant movement opportunity. And so spending so much time working with team sport athletes on speed, many of these things had to do with front side mechanics or backside mechanics. And so once I'm certain I've watched enough reps 
and got enough of a subjective understanding of how they experience their body in motion, then we've isolated out the key area for improvement. And when I then get into the cueing, I use something as follows. So for example, let's say they're suffering from not bringing their leg up high enough. Their front side mechanics are poor in sprinting. I'm going to start with a very basic external cue that is going to start the conversation. If you would, it's a raw piece of marble that we can carve into what fits them, their body, and their mind. So one of my favorite cues would be drive your knee forward as if to shatter a pane of glass. And so I'll ask them, what does that cue mean to you? And if they say something that reiterates the meaning behind the cue, well, you want me to get my leg forward violently, literally as if I was to break through something. Absolutely, let's give it a go. And so they do the repetition. Maybe it's two or three repetitions because we're seeing cascading improvement. I say, okay, now that you've done that and you've focused on driving your knee forward as if to break a pane of glass, do you like that cue or do you want to actually think of something different? And they might say to me, no, I like that. Let's stick with it. Fantastic. We'll write it out until the body starts to shift until I get information where they give me information that suggests that the cue, let's say, shelf life is over and we need to update and freshen it up. Or they may say to me, well, you know what? I did a lot of boxing when I was young. I actually would rather almost think about punching something. That resonates with me a bit more. Fantastic. I want you to imagine I have a sparring mitt in front of you. And that knee, that's that fist. Bam! Blast the sparring mitt. Punch through, break through every time you get off the line. And so that evolution of cueing always needs to have those two symptoms of success, right? One, it needs to work, Matt. But two, it needs to be relatable familiar, interesting, intriguing to them. And the only way I figure out that subjective experience of the cue is through conversation. So you start from a place of good basic science and experience, an external cue with good meaning anchored to the error, but then through conversation, through what I call the debrief, we start to craft, shape, update, and nudge the cue to fit that individual so that it becomes so attractive their mind orbits around that focus the second they get into the context of the activity. I think that's an absolutely fantastic idea. It's something that I've definitely not considered before is to go back to the athlete and say, what does that cue mean to you? And really reflect on that together. I think that if, if I take one thing from this podcast, I'm going to take that, I'm going to steal it, and I'm going to implement it as quickly as possible. That's uh, an absolute brilliant piece of gold. Thank you. Beautiful, Matt. Um, listen, we're, we're pushed for time. Could you give us a quick 30-second summary of what you've discussed today? Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, there are two key elements to what we do. There's what we do. That's the X's and O's, the reps, the sets, and the program design. And that's how we do it. How do we deliver that? How do we communicate that to the athlete? And so ultimately, what we talked about today is as important as the program is in paper and in your mind, you need a mechanism to get the words off the paper and into the person. And that's what cueing is about. And that's why external cues and analogies are critical because they are the best way to bridge that gap. I'm Nick Winkleman. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's an absolutely fantastic podcast. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, pleasure was all mine. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. So considering the depth at which Nick has discussed sport performance today, if you're looking to take your performance as a coach to the next level, be sure to check out our five must-read research reviews, which are available to download in the show notes. Also in the show notes will be the link to Nick's new book, 
the language of coaching. So if you want a more in-depth explanation of everything going on in the world of queuing, be sure to check that one out at the end of this podcast. Once again, a massive thanks to Nick for all of his hard work in today's podcast. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have too. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next time.